Good morning. What a wonderful weekend we enjoyed last, last week. From Friday night to Sunday morning, it was, it was just amazing. So this morning we arrive at the climax of the Gospel of Matthew. I have chosen my words very carefully. It's the pinnacle, it's the apex, it's the high point, it's the climax. It is not the end. Some of you are wishing, but we're going to wrap all of this up next Sunday morning. Uh, but this is our last specific text in the book of Matthew. And these verses truly bring to an amazing conclusion this long and complicated gospel. Jesus was a teacher. He worked miracles. He spent most of his brief ministry up in the obscure province of, of Galilee in the north and then even a little farther to the north. A few took up his invitation to follow him. Twelve became what we know as disciples, followers. When he died, his followers probably numbered no more than a couple of hundred. The question for this morning is this. How is it possible for this obscure Jewish sect to become the largest religion in the world? It never seemed very likely to happen, but it did. Our text this morning is a passage you have heard preached many times. And if you've been to very many missions conferences, you've probably enjoyed some amazing preachers dig down and uncover uh, its depth and its implications. So I'm not sure there's a lot of stones left to, to turn over this morning. And so it's a bit of an intimidating passage, and I will struggle to do it justice. But as we look at this last and final paragraph, it seems to me that Matthew wants us to see two things, just two. This is the rare two-pointed sermon that you've been longing for. They're just bigger points, so don't, 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 no hope, you know. So let's read the text, Matthew 28, 16 through 18. Then the eleven went to Galilee to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age." Now, there's some melancholy moments in this text. Then the 11. Hmm. And there are some phrases which tie off the threads Matthew has been carefully weaving into his gospel. They're to a mountain up in Galilee. And it's to Jesus who's given all authority in heaven and on earth. And he commissions his disciples to impact the history of humanity. And so I think there's two things we should take away from this last paragraph of the gospel. Two things that are true. Number one, here's a shocker. Jesus is the climax of, Old Testament, of the Old Testament story. Jesus is the pinnacle. He's the ultimate Matthew's been very clear from his opening genealogy. There is a link between the Old Testament and Jesus. And there's a continuity which he picks up after centuries of silence. And the whole Old Testament ended leaving us hanging. Humanity's got a huge problem. 
It's unresolved. And the Old Testament lays it all out and it leaves it just hanging there, waiting. Is there going to be a Messiah? Is there going to be a Savior? We need this. Bump, bada, bump, bum. And that's it. That's the Old Testament message. Bump, bada, bump, bum. So if you're going to believe that Jesus is the son of David, the, the, the fulfillment of thousands of years of prophecy, Matthew has to prove it. And so he does. We heard this a lot in the book. And all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. You got to tick the boxes of Messiahhood. And a while back in the gospel, we noticed he stopped doing that. He stopped using that phrase. I think because he realized, you know, I've done this a lot. This stuff is so common. You pick it up now. You do this. Because it's important for Matthew that we see this continuity between Jesus and Israel's history. That Jesus fits into the plan of God. He is the culmination of that plan. He's the bum bum to the dump da da dump dum. What a relief for people to finally hear that. They've been waiting in anticipation. But the religious system that's grown up while they were waiting for the Messiah is really causing some, some hurdles to belief. But Matthew's clear the culmination of the work of God in redemption is here. And as the journey ends, we got to start ticking those boxes ourselves. So let's do that together. Verse 16, then the 11 went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw him, they worshiped him, but some doubted. They went to Galilee, where it all started. Jesus fulfills his own prophecy. He had told them in chapter 26, when I'm, when I'm risen from the dead, we're going to go to Galilee. He returns to where this began for the disciples, the place they called home. And as Matthew tells the story, except for one trip south to Jerusalem where he died, his entire ministry is up in the north. So why does he take them back there where it all began? Well, Jerusalem has rejected its king. So now it's left to itself. Let's go to Galilee. Jerusalem's on its own. He says he goes to the mountain. Somewhere along the, the northwest shore of the Sea of Galilee, they came, 11 men. Had to be a little bit excited, wondering, you know, oh, what's this going to be like? He wants to meet us on the mountain. And then suddenly he just shows up and begins to speak to them. And he says something that will change the course of their lives, and it's changed the course of our lives. And it takes place where? On a mountain. A mountain. Well, that's significant. What else has happened on a mountain? Well, in the Gospel of Matthew, he had outlined his whole, what my kingdom is like on the Sermon on the Mount. On a mountain, we would call it a hill, but they called it a mountain. He was tempted by Satan on a mountain. He explained the future of the kingdom on the Mount of Olives. And don't forget, there's got to be a connection with the Old Testament. When a Jewish reader heard mountain, what are they thinking? Sinai. Moses received the law on Mount Sinai. That was a revelation that changed everything for the people of Israel. And so now Jesus is beginning something equally as revolutionary. Not on Mount Sinai, 
but on a mountain in Galilee. Everything is about to change. Something brand new is happening, but there's this continuity because it's still on a mountain. And God had commanded Israel on a mountain, and Jesus gives his new commandment, his new marching orders on a mountain. And then he says later on, it's, it's, we are to make disciples of, of all nations. Well, that, that's got to trigger some thoughts. It's a now a change. What had he told them in Matthew 10? Just go to the house of Israel. Now in Matthew 28, he says, mm, go to all nations. And Jesus makes it clear that now the promise to Abraham that through him he would bless the world it was happening, and it is happening through the church of all nations. There are other connections, but there's a verse, verse 17, 16 and 17. We really usually skip over that. Then the 11 disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw him, they worshiped him, but some doubted. Wait a minute. How is it possible for an obscure Jewish sect to impact the world. We rarely talk about these two verses, but we should, because they set the scene, they set the tone for what's coming in verse 18. They are no longer 12, but 11. One of them hasn't just betrayed, he's dead. Judas is gone. And these 11 men are the closest friends Jesus had on earth. And they followed him throughout his years of ministry. And he is actually about to leave them. So they got to be thinking, Jesus, what's your plan to keep this going? And what does Jesus say? Well, I got 11. Well, that's all? Well, there were more, but there are more, but these are the key people. Well, I thought you had 12. Well, I did, but one of them betrayed me, and, and they're gone. And so this conversation moves on. Eleven men to reach the world. It doesn't sound very hopeful on the surface, does it? But it gets worse. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Now, have you heard a sermon on that verse before? It's not too encouraging when one of your loyal followers betrays you, and it's even worse when some of those who, who remain with you, they even doubt you. Some doubted. And that's what Jesus has as he comes to the end of his time on earth. That's the stark reality. They're not all like on board. We're some days, perhaps weeks, maybe even a month past the resurrection. And some of his best men still doubt him. I don't know if that means they really aren't sure who he is. I'm not sure if, if they're not understanding the mission in front of them. But if you're the leader, that's troubling. What do you do about that? What would we have done? Well, if we were Jesus, if, if, well, if he were us, I don't know, we would probably, you know, pull out of our library. You know, this book isn't going to get written for another couple thousand years, but I've managed to get a copy of it. I've translated it into Aramaic for you. It's, it's the evidence that demands a verdict. Read this. That'll answer all your questions. Or maybe he would have said, you know, centuries from now, a guy named C.S. Lewis is going to live in England. He's going to write a book called Mere Christianity. Yeah, I got it translated for you in Aramaic. Read it, the details, which is absurd on the surface. 
But isn't that what we would do? We use apologetics to get up, help people get rid of their doubts. But that's not what happens here. What happens here? Some doubted. And just Jesus just goes with it. That's what we got. It's almost as if Jesus is saying, don't worry about anything. Don't even worry about your doubts. Go and make disciples. And in your going, your doubts will disappear. And I kind of think that's exactly what happened. Nothing dispels our doubts like speaking up for the Savior. Get into the arena. Get into action. Start talking and your doubts will disappear. This doubting, it reminds us of Peter walking on the water, does it not? Because when he walked on the water, what happened? He began to sink. Why? Jesus says, oh, ye of little faith. I've been struggling with this for the entire ministry. This conclusion, I think, is rich with allusions to the gospel, even as, as Jesus is ticking the boxes. This is just, you remember all this stuff that we were with together. There's more, but let me explore one more. Verse 18, Jesus said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. When he rose from the dead, everything changed. His cause is no longer just local. It's now universal, as we've seen. And if Jesus is the climax of the Old Testament revelation, then, then Jesus changes everything. And you hear in Matthew what? Echoes of Daniel 7. I'm sure you heard that. But listen to Daniel 7. You tell me if these aren't the same thing. Daniel 7, in my vision at night I looked, and there before me was one like the Son of Man, coming with, cloud, with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. Matthew uses at the end of Matthew 28 language reminiscent of Daniel chapter 7. There's a continuity between Israel's sacred story and the story of Jesus. Because with the resurrection comes power and victory. And the cause of Jesus and the kingdom of Jesus is clearly now universal in scope. But the problem is we live in a world that what? Values power and money. Wealth has its privileges. How would the first disciples manage this spreading of the kingdom message out into the world? Well, the first ones, if they went south, what are they going to encounter? They're going to encounter the pyramids of Egypt. They'd see the sphinx rising from the sand. In Alexandria, they would encounter the greatest library of the ancient world. How would his followers fare against these wise sages of Alexandria? If they went north, they'd come to Antioch, another seat of great learning. Eventually, a man named Paul would arrive in Athens, the cultural seat of the ancient world. And there in the land of Socrates and Aristotle, surrounded by altars and marble statues, underneath the shadow of the mighty Acropolis, he would proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ and call people to repentance. And eventually, the early Christians would come to Rome and the vast and staggering grandeur of the Roman Empire. 
Who would dare to preach Christ in Rome? Some will take the gospel east to India and China, filled with people unaware that Jesus had even been here. Who would dare preach Christ there? How would the Christian message survive in the face of the power and the wealth of the world? Well, when they entered Alexandria, they don't have to worry about it because the power of Jesus is greater than the power of the world. They could appreciate the glories of Athens, but they didn't have to be intimidated because there was no glory in Athens greater than the glory of Jesus Christ. And in Rome, the seat of imperial power could not compare with the power resident in the one who is currently at the right hand of God himself. And all of that says that we have nothing to fear as we go out into the world. Because the power of Jesus, it surpasses the power of the world. All authority in heaven and earth is his. And we think of the rich and the powerful today, the Bill Gates, Xi Jinping, Vladimir Putin, Jeff Bezos, Mohammed bin Salman. You probably didn't know that name, but that's a very powerful name. Joe Biden, Mark Zuckerberg, Elon Musk. Who are they compared to Jesus Christ? They're nothing at all because the resurrection of Jesus Christ, it changes everything. He is the ultimate. The writer of the Hebrews put it this way. Just listen. In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through these prophets and in many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed heir of all things and through whom he also made the universe. The son is the radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by the word of his power. And after he had provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. So he became as much superior to the angels, to the angels as the name he has inherited is superior to theirs. He is the culmination of revelation. And we've heard him and seen him. Matthew's clear. He's the apex. Listen to him. As he ends his book, Matthew does one other thing that's very important. Number two, Matthew says that we are invited to enter the story. We're invited to join in the story of God. Not only is Jesus the, the apex of revelation, but we as the reader, we are now invited along on this journey. What's our role? Verse 19, therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. For the moment, let's forget the details. What's the main point? The main point is this is impossible. They can't do this. How are 11 men going to disciple the nations, especially while some of them still doubted? It can't be done. And we make a huge mistake if we read this great commission outside of its context. Jesus is not saying, okay, guys, it's up to you. Because that, if that's the meaning, then the whole Christian movement would have died within a few years. The real meaning is this. You're not equal to the task, 
but I am. And in case they missed it, Jesus adds the last phrase in verse 20, and surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. A blanket promise that the ongoing presence of the Son of God will be with his people, no matter where they go, no matter how far they go, no matter when they go. It's huge. Don't worry, I'll be there with you. So we should read Matthew 28, the last paragraph this way. Number one, I have all power. Number two, I'm with you wherever you go. Number three, now go make disciples. We tend to focus on number three. But that has not always been the the focus of the church. But it was those words, these that number three, go and make disciples, that were instrumental in the great missionary movements that came in the 18 and 1900s. But don't miss this. The going part is totally impossible without number one and number two. The real message is something like this. Go, and I will go with you. Go, and I will go ahead of you. Go, and I will take care of you. And in light of how things played out, it should have said this, go and you will probably die for my sake, but I will be with you to the very end. And when you die, I will not leave you, not even for a second. I will be with you forever, no matter what. But we still need to look at the details of this text. What are we supposed to do in this new commission? He says, therefore, go and make disciples of all nations. So now you're going to get some Greek grammar lessons, all right? You got to trust me because not, not anybody, I don't know, the Thomases, and not many speak Greek here. So you'll have to believe me on this one. But there's only one verb in the original language in, in this text. There's just one verb, and it's important. It's important because you could read this, and and sometimes if you read it in English, it seems like there's three, four verbs that are present here. You might read this and say, well, it looks like we're supposed to go. It looks like we're supposed to make disciples. We're supposed to baptize, and and, and some even say teach. But it looks as if you're telling us to do four things, Jesus. Go, make disciples, baptize, and teach. But there's only one verb. You're only supposed to really do one thing. And it's wrapped up in that one verb, which in English is two words, make disciples. The other three words are participles. It says really going. It says baptizing. It says teaching. They're all participles. They're designed to be dependent upon the action of the verb, make disciples. In his last message to his, to his followers, Jesus says, gentlemen, after I'm gone, I want you to do one thing, and I want you to do one thing more importantly than anything else. I want you, as you're going around, to make disciples. What does disciple mean? Well, it's a word from the classroom. It means to be a learner. You, you've learned something from someone else. A disciple is someone who's a pupil sitting at someone else's feet. You're following someone if you're a disciple. And to make a disciple is to go out and convert somebody who's just a bystander and make them an active follower. And that's what the church of Jesus Christ is to be all about. We're all to be about making new followers. It's, you read this command to make disciples. 
You, you think of a massive parade going down the street, and Jesus as the King and the Messiah is leading the procession, and the seraphim and the, and the angels behind him, and then the, the men and women of faith behind them. And, and the, the viewing stands are jammed with this, watching this procession, and the saints from all time following. And then finally it's our turn, and we're walking down. And what does this mean? It means, yeah, we're enjoying this parade. We're going along, but we're looking up at the stands, and we see somebody, we go up to the stands, and we grab them and, and try to get them to join us. Not only do we follow Jesus in the parade, but we go up to the grandstands, and we bring some people down, and we get them to join the parade with us. It's one of the purposes of the church. That's the what we're supposed to do. But where are we supposed to do that? Jesus said, therefore, go and make disciples of all nations. A little more Greek, not as important this time. Of all nations, it's a good translation. But when we hear of all nations, what do we think? We think of political boundaries. The Greek word is really, is really ethnic. That's the word from which we, the word they use in the original is the word, English word we get ethnic from. It's a word described, you know, the ethnicities that we see scattered all around the LA Basin. When we read nations, we think politics, we think Iraq or Ukraine or Thailand or Honduras, Brazil, whatever. That's not what Jesus means, though. He means ethnic peoples of the world, language groups racial groups. He means that his church is to be a church going out to all people groups in the world, all language groups, all racial groups. Christianity has to become a world religion. These were 11 Jewish men raised pretty much in Orthodox Jewish homes. Do you know what he's saying to them? Men, I want you to give up your prejudice. I want you to give up your small vision of the world. I want you to get over your ethnocentrism. I want you to get over your small ideas of what you think is right and wrong. I want you to cross over religious boundaries. I want you to cross over language boundaries. I want you to cross over geographic boundaries. I want you to take my gospel to the ends of the earth. It means that Jesus from the very beginning says that it was meant by God to be the savior of the world not just Americans, not just Jews, not even just Gentiles, but the entire world. And do you know what else that means? It means that his church is to be representative of the vast variety of people in the world. There ought to be people in church from everywhere. There ought to be blacks and whites. There ought to be rich and poor. There ought to be young and old. There ought to be people from the upper class. There ought to be people from, from lower economic status. His church needs to contain people from all ethnic groups. But the problem is that the gospel itself will not automatically erase racism and its legacy. But the gospel put into action should motivate us as believers to seek to eliminate racism and its legacy. Racism is an affront to God. He created all men with equal dignity and sacred worth. And if you think that was an easy transition in the first century, you have not read the New Testament with open eyes. This was hard. They didn't want to do this. The Gentiles, oh, well, what should they, how Jewish do they have to be? Come on. It was very difficult for them. 
And it took them a very long time to navigate this with some sort of grace. But that's what we're supposed to do and where. How are you supposed to do this? Well, those are the participles. Going, baptizing, teaching. We're to do those three things. How do you make disciples? You, by going, by sharing the gospel, by baptizing, by bringing them into the fellowship, by identifying and let them, letting them identify with us, and by teaching them everything Jesus has taught us. Three words for this. Going is invitation. Baptizing is initiation. Teaching, you're not going to like this word, but I couldn't think of a better one, is indoctrination. Teaching them. Taking our doctrine, putting it into somebody else. You teach it to them. You impart it to them. You share the gospel of Jesus Christ with the whole world, and you bring them into the church. You baptize them, and then you teach them everything that Jesus has taught us. It's clear what the church is not supposed to do. We're not supposed to be retreating into our stained glass sanctuaries where we're surrounded by Christians and only Christians. Why not? Because then you will never discover the true power and the true presence of Christ in your life. You'll never know if Jesus is with you until you decide to go somewhere in his name. There's nothing to worry about. Jesus says, you know, I'm more powerful than anything you can run into. There's no pressure. Jesus says, I'm going to go with you wherever you go. See, the good news for all of us comes down from Jesus himself. Not everyone will love you, but you cannot fail. Not everyone will believe your message, but you cannot fail. And that's how the Christian movement started with 11 men, some who doubted, and has grown to over 2 billion people some 2,000 years later. More than 40% of the people on the planet call themselves Christians, and their number is growing more rapidly than any other major faith. And so what is Matthew saying to us as he wraps up his gospel? Basically, he is saying... I'm excited for you. Have a blast. You can do this. There's no grand final summary statement. This is an open-ended book. Jesus has universal significance, but he is also always with his people. I am with you always. And what's the result? The believing audience of Matthew and the ever-living Son of God become intimate. I'm with you always. See, the Jesus that commands difficult obedience is at the same time the ever-graceful divine presence in our lives. I am with you always. So will you enter the story of God? Will you pick up the baton, which is now in our hands, in our generation, and in our world? Let's pray. Father, the, math, the, the ending that Matthew crafts for his book 
make sure that we keep our focus on, on the Savior as the center and pinnacle of biblical revelation, as the, the one who, who can bridge the gap from the Old Testament to the New Testament. And yes, they will take years figuring out what this resurrection really meant and, and what it means in life and in the church life. But you are the ultimate. And second, it means that we now can enter this story. And it's kind of amazing that we can actually do this. We don't understand the gospel of Matthew in its fullness. But we do know this. The baton is in our hands. And it's okay. And we can do this for the honor and the glory of our Savior. In whose name we pray. Amen.